Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. Tonight, we're at the coastal rowing regatta in Carasivine, and we'll hear about a new book on search and rescue all around the Irish coasts. Right throughout the summer, many coastal communities around Ireland hold their local regattas at the local pier. In Kerry, the regatta season kicked off last weekend and Noel Sweeney caught the action from a lively Carzivine. He began by chatting with local rowing veteran Mary B. Tehan. Okay, all boats ready? Kerry regatta season has kicked off at the pier in Carzivine. And the lap. Mary Tehan is the PRO for the Mid and South Kerry Rowing Board. She's telling me all I need to know about regattas in the kingdom. We're here at the first regatta of our season. Unfortunately, we had to uh, cancel the first two regattas. So the South and Mid Kerry is a traditional board. All our boats are wood. We're big traditionalists and it's all about preserving tradition. We have two t- boat classes here today that are synonymous only with the waters of South and Mid Kerry. So you have a four-oar, a South of Kerry four-oar, which is four oars and a cox. And then what's completely unique to us is our seine boat, which is 12 men over six oars, two men to an oar and a cox. And that really captures the imagination of everybody. We, we have 13 clubs affiliated right around the, the waters from Canafersi, Cremon, Carsevine, Sai, Valencia, Port McGee, Cardaniel, Templeno and Sneem. And these clubs, every summer, come together for a series of regattas. And we have eight points regattas. And we have nine four-hour races and we have a same boat race. And we try and keep this tradition going year after year after year. We're sitting right beside a brand new same boat here, which is which is, which is in the club colours of Carsevine, is that right? No, that's, that's Valencia. Valencia, oh, geez, sorry. Don't call it Carsevine, that's <laughs> okay. Valencia. So, right, so the... Valencia have a brand new boat. It's stunning to see. She's going out on the water for her first trip today. Everybody's here to see how she's going to perform. Uh, Dermot Walsh is the man that made this boat. He's going to cox it. He trains the crews. He's building. Another man, massive contribution to our sport. So this boat, just to kind of give you an idea, the reason why it's so unique, it's 34 feet long and it's two men to an oar. And when people see it for the first time, they're blown away because you won't see it anywhere else in the country. I was lucky to catch a busy Dermot Walsh as he finished coxing for one race and prepared for another. I built the, the, these two that here, yeah, the, the four-hour boat in the same boat. I built the same boat this year, which is new, and a uh, few small teething problems to sort out the all, hopefully. I have a great bunch of lads, I have 12 great lads there. But uh, my, my real thing is the, is the kids, the underage, from under 12s, up to senior men in the four hour. They're outstanding artillery. And as they have this old WhatsApp group, every one of them, and they come down together and they go to one. And we more enjoyed to the last. Great fun, great everything. Great crackers. That's what life is about. That's what sport is about, like. First or last, we shall have fun. This was her maiden voyage. Maiden voyage yeah. yeah, and how was it? How was it? Good enough. I was, um, I thought I'd be well out of it. I told people I'd be well out because she's down a bit by the heel. But I, after being that close, I can't do anything with her now. I understand that you actually make the oars as well, is I that do, right? I do yeah. make the oars as well, yeah. What, what, what kind of process is involved in that then? Well, get timber is impossible. How would these be sourced if you weren't in the area? Well, there's always someone that do it. There was a great man, uh, I learnt a lot from a man there that, 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 that actually died last year, a gentleman, uh, Joseph Woolen. I saw him making oars. He was a dead hand at them. Great hand at them all together. 
he know better than me about making horse. You know, he would. Uh, are you here again tomorrow? Here again tomorrow, yeah. Uh, are you Cox? I am doing the fool again. We have races from under 12s, right under 14, boys and girls. That's going on now in the background. Right up to senior ladies. And today we had a wonderful senior ladies race, having eight senior ladies boats out in the water. Fantastic flight of boats leaving the start line. It was absolutely brilliant. For those involved in coastal rowing, dedication is fierce. As Valencia Islander, Amy Lyne tells us. We came third, <laughs> I think about that for a second. Um, yeah, so it was a tough race in fairness. We had very, very little training. Um, last night was our first night out as a crew. Other years we would have had a lot better, um, a lot better training right, done. But they, um, a lot of the girls now are working away from home and stuff like that. So it's very hard for... The senior ladies to get together, especially we've we've grown up together and we've always been rowing together. But uh, once people start going to college and start working away from home, it's quite hard. So last night was our first night out, and we didn't actually expect um, a, we didn't expect a result like this. But I suppose there's a, with the boys outside here, there's a lot of pros and cons with the tide because it's rowing on on the mouth of the river and there's strong tide coming on the centre. So it's it depends on the boy as well that you get. But in fairness, we uh, pulled a very strong race going down. And then things went right after first at the rounding and coming back home then it was a lot better. We had the tide with us. So, How is the summer looking for you now? Uh, very busy. <laughs> very busy. Um, I'd be quite involved with the crew, all the different crews at home. And um, you could some evenings you could head down to the pier at maybe 5 or 6 o'clock and you wouldn't leave till about 11. Um, and that would be because you'd ha- there'd be different crews coming in and out. And in fairness, I love rowing, I love rowing and I think like I'd be down to help out with the smaller crews and do you know it's hard to get a four together for crews so I'd be always there to fill in my sisters are always there to fill in and um, a lot of our a lot of our rowers actually come from outside Valencia Island so it's quite hard to get everybody into rowing at a certain time we could spend myself and my sisters could spend maybe four hours down at the pier races um, comprise of from under 12s boys and girls who are our youngest category 14 boys and girls, 16 boys and girls, 18 boys and girls, senior ladies, senior men, and then the same boat. So there's a category for most um, age groups. Um, It's a hugely coastal thing. Um, All the clubs that are affiliated to us are representing fishing communities. That's our backbone, you could say, of um, our association. And all the different colours that you see here today are synonymous. So Valencia, as you can see, this beautiful same boat here beside us is yellow and red that's their colours Sive is a y- yellow and blue um, Sneem are the reds um, we're known as the green army because we're the emerald of Cremon so our colour is green um, the colours of uh, the home club of course we have to give a mention is the liberator the blue and white of the Car Savine a hugely hugely traditional club as well and I'm following Regattas with 28 years and absolutely adore coming together every summer and keeping that tradition going. We're living by the sea, we're an island nation, we're surrounded by water and um, there's a tradition of fishing communities up and down our coast and the pride of, of going out right, going to battle is gallons. what it's all about and Diamond winning those medals and you have to do it all over again tomorrow nine. and that's what it's Diamond all about and it's about meeting rivalries, great friendship and a healthy respect. Mel in by number seven and Portuguese in by number eight. At seven boats in the under 14 gallons. So can we have them cruise up to the tapping line, please? 
What might draw someone to, to row the same boat versus the four? Okay, I suppose you progress up along. You need stamina. Um, to go into a sane boat, it's nav- averaging between 25 and 30 minutes. It's not for the faint-hearted. Um, it's once described as like seeing a football team inside in a boat. Um, it's absolutely, rowing is such an honest sport, there's absolutely no place to hide when you go into it. Um, and I suppose the fact that you would have 25 to 30 minutes of constant rowing, you wouldn't be putting a 14 or a 16-year-old into that. It's a senior men's game. Um, and people progress up to the four hours if you are lucky enough to fill a same boat. There's like 12 people fo- rowing the same. So in a community, in you know rel- relatively small communities, is that easy, is it challenging? No, or that's always challenging because you're competing against other sports um, who would have a calendar of events as well. And then it's about having, um, I suppose, cooperation between the sports for both sports to excel. What I mean by that, the GA and the, and the rowing. I always say to the GA, the tide, is what matters to us. The tide comes in and the tide goes out. The football field is not going anywhere. So let's work together because we're working out of the same pond of people. It takes a whole synergy for a club to actually mobilise to a regatta here today. The race that's going on today is part of the Johnny Mahoney Cup, is that right? Okay, so the Johnny Mahoney, uh, to explain to the listeners, the Johnny Mahoney um, overall is given to the same boat with the most points. So we have a points regatta here today. If you win the race, you get four points three for second, two for third and a point for completing the race. The Johnny Mahoney is the most coveted. He is the messiah of the South of McCary waters. His contribution to our sport is synonymous. He made and built boats he trained crews. Right, he was the an absolute on the passion on, you know, his passion and tradition for our sport and basically he was the driving force in getting the sport going again because we went to a patch where we were not out in the waters in strong numbers and the Johnny Mahoney was dedicated for him, his contribution. I don't say Messiah lightly, but he is the Messiah and he is the man that everybody looked up to. He was so hugely respected. He was from Ardcast. He rode. He built boats. Oh, he was there in the 40s, 50s. It's the biggest. It's like the Sam Maguire in football. The Johnny Mahoney is every man that gets into the same boat you want the Johnny Mahoney you have no idea right, how highly that is esteemed would the winners of the Johnny Mahoney Cup go on to like national uh, games or is, or is that an isolated so South McCary have 13 clubs and nationally there's associations right around the island we all have associations just like we have here today not everybody's traditional but the majority of them are right we come together for the all-ireland coastal rowing championships this year it's on in wexford and that's the national coastal rowing championships and it's the one where everybody pits against our fellow uh, rivals from right around the country but huge respect they have their traditional boats we have our traditional boats we go out in a boat race called a heritage race uh, which pits our boats against theirs now we brought in a one design boat which is a boat that you'll see in Phoenix and in Tarbert and that's uh, it's a fibreglass it's not a traditional made wooden boat and um, there's a, a class for every OK so guys can um, we have all the boats up to the starting line please all the boats up to the starting line and you know the only thing I can compare it to is when we went to Scotland a couple of years ago the Shetland boy showed me a, a boat similar in length um, similar in length but there was okay, only six men to a boat, and they only row in straight lines, whereas we go in a triangular course, and um, that's what makes it fun. <laughs> you know. And what kind of training do these uh, rowers, uh, I suppose, I won't say endure, but that's because they love it, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, what, what, what kind of what kind of training is involved in this kind of thing? There's a lot of training involved in this. Like you were going out for 
half an hour to 40 minutes per session, two to three nights a week, regattas every weekend. Um, this weekend we have two regattas. Um, we have eight of them and um, it's a massive okay. commitment. It's your summer gone every year. All but, we do, but we do it because we love it. So, here we go. They're staying close to the pier. So here comes Sneem. Uh, the mighty minute Sneem Cox there by James Gleeson. Leading it out um, in tremendous style. Um, he has a couple of new guys in that, that boat and they're rowing brilliantly well. Um, it's, you know, they make it look easy and that's not easy. And um, uh, stroke oar there by Kieran um, Murphy, unbelievable stroke oar man and fantastic crew. So as you can see there, it's a fantastic sight to see. 12 men, six oars and James Gleeson is, is their cox and it makes it look very, very easy as they come up here to the finishing line. To win the Kathleen Sainboard race. Well done, guys. And that was Noel Sweeney in Cahasavine, County Kerry. And you should keep an eye out for coastal regattas right throughout the summer. Lorna Siggins is a regular contributor to Seascapes and she's been reporting on maritime issues for many years. She's just published a book entitled Search and Rescue, True Stories of Irish Air-Sea Rescues and the Loss of Rescue 116 and she came into studio to tell me about it. Lorna, you call the book Search and Rescue. What are you trying to do in this book? It came about really because I was up in Black Sod during the search for the Rescue 116 crew and Kieran Smith's parents were in the community hall. Um, he the, being one of the crew? Yeah, he was one of the winch crew and at that stage Captain Dara Fitzpatrick's body and Captain Mark Duffy's body had been taken ashore and they were still looking for Paul Ormsby and Kieran Smith and um, Kieran Smith had spoken to me for a previous book that I'd done called Mayday Mayday and he was with the Air Corps at the time and he was one of the winch crew and he was very funny and he talked about taking a swimmer out of the water in Derry and the swimmer was losing consciousness and he had to keep slapping this guy to keep him awake and everybody was looking at him thinking what's this fella doing beating up the person he's trying to rescue. He was really a very unassuming guy. And Kieran's mother just said, well, you're just going to have to update the book now. So that was really how it came about. So I was then continuing on from 2004 where Mayday Mayday had finished off. But I realised that I should go back and talk about the early years of search and rescue. And you're talking about helicopter rescues, but also the RNLI and the Coast Guard. Yeah, in Mayday Mayday, it was really about helicopter search and rescue. But with this one, I suppose I had a bit more freedom. And obviously, there are an awful lot of rescues that are not covered, but some of the major ones for the RNLI and for the Coast Guard as well. Go back to the early days of helicopters. There are some extraordinary stories there of the West of Ireland. So some of the pioneers in the Air Corps because we had been dependent on the RAF and the British Navy. But the Air Corps did start flying search and rescue and doing training and they were doing training in Dunleary and it was all very rudimentary. And then, as Barney McMahon said to me, uh, we were so we were we really felt that we were invincible and we didn't really know how to say no. So um, there was one particular one where there was a French vessel missing or in trouble off the West Coast and they flew out, but they were running out of fuel. Um, The vessel was actually located and it was okay, but they had to try and get back to Baldonnell and they weren't even sure if they'd get back to Clifton. And they landed in a handball alley 
And then they had to try and get fuel. And so they got fuel locally, but it, they had to filter the fuel. And uh, so they got a pair of nylons to filter the fuel. To make it to aviation grade. Yeah. So those sort of stories, you know, and um, really pin of the collar sort of stuff that the Air Corps was involved in. And they were involved in search and rescue up until um, Fianna Fáil pulled them out of search and rescue in, in the early 2000s. We'll go back into talking about helicopter rescues as well, but you talk quite a lot then about the RNLI, which has an extraordinary history in this country. It really does. And we have one situation where um, Neville Murphy, who's one of the winch crew with the Waterford Coast Guard helicopter, is also an RNLI volunteer. And, um, you know, obviously they have some paid staff as well, but they have amazing people working in all the lifeboat stations. You've interviewed very many of them and they're going out. And at least when you're out on a helicopter, I suppose, at some point, you know, you're going to have to come back. Hopefully you're going to come back. But the lifeboats, they're often out for hours. They don't know when they're going to come home. Why? What motivates people to join? Now, when you're in small villages where there's an hour and a lifeboat, it's a bit, it always gives me the impression of being part of a small club, maybe even something like the Scouts, but it's an awful lot more than that. Yeah, it, it seems to be, um, I, you know, when I spoke to particular volunteers, maybe one or two of them might have been rescued themselves and they wanted to give something back. But often it's just that they want to be part of the community and the lifeboat is very much the heart of it. And what happens there, it's all happening on the pier and it's all Mm. happening at the lifeboat station. And um, COVID was very, very difficult for them. I would have interviewed some of them when I was finishing off the book when um, COVID was just affecting all of us. And for them, it was particularly difficult because, you know, they they training was suspended. um, And then when shouts came, it was... They all had to stay in their car and until, you know, the coxswain could decide who was going to go out and they had to wear all the PPE gear. And, you know, we might have been complaining about wearing PPE, but for them to go out looking for somebody and then, you know, having to wear all the PPE gear and the helmets and all the safety gear as well. It's another layer of pressure, Mm -hmm. really. One area which jumps out of the book as regards rescues is the southeast part of corner of this country. Why is the water there so dangerous? Why are there so many accidents there? Well, I suppose it's the contour of the coastline and then those very, very strong tides. And I suppose I do cover in one particular um, chapter in the southeast. 2007 was Mm. a particularly bad year and it started off really badly with a number of fishing vessels, starting with the pair Charles going missing. And Damien Tiernan, your colleague, has written about that, um, Souls of the Sea. And that was devastating. And, you know, there, there was another one then called Honeydew 2. Yeah. Lost off that. Yeah. And then the Renegades, and the which Renegade. also went down. Yeah. All within a week. Yeah. It was a very, very bleak time. And then... Um, uh, previous to that, there would have been, you know, there would have been maybe smaller vessels as well that would would have got into trouble. And and sometimes the bodies are just not recovered. Just like when I was up in Black Sod, some of the families who were talking to the Rescue 116 families were saying, we've lost people here and we have not recovered bodies because of the strong tides here. What difference does it make to a family if they don't get a body back? I mean, I suppose that word closure, which um, 
you know, it's a very difficult word. I think that Neve Fitzpatrick, uh, Dara Fitzpatrick's sister, has spoken very well about this, that it's not even necessarily the most appropriate word. But, you know, when, when, when a body is recovered, it is a way for the families to grieve. And when the body is not recovered, it's very, very difficult to accept that somebody is not going to come walking back in the door. In the southeast, there was also an earlier a Dauphin helicopter crash in which four men were killed, four members of the Air Corps killed. What happened there? That was July 1999 and um, Michael Woods was the Marine Minister at the time. And I remember it had gone from 12 hour cover to 24 hour cover. And the 24 hour cover was to start on July the 1st, 1999. And the minister went down and the Air Corps were there and the crew were there and they were all photographed. And it was really sad that the next day in the papers, photographs appeared of that crew and they were already dead. Yeah, I have to say that one of the Mick Baker was a friend of mine who I'd stayed with and he was a terrific guy. Did we find out what happened there? I suppose they, they, as we know, they had gone out to um, assist with a small boat that was missing in thick fog and the lifeboat had gone out as well. And they were on the way. Um, Captain David Flaherty was, and Captain Mick Baker were the pilots and they were on the way to um, Waterford um, when they got a call to say, actually, uh, we've located the vessel so you don't need to go. But then there was a sort of a discussion not dissimilar to a way the sort of rather loose discussion that occurred with Rescue 116 in relation to, you know, a medical evacuation for what we now say was a minor injury, but it was a pretty serious injury at the time. So um, they were sort of given the option and they they really probably felt under pressure that they should go. And um, there was a reference to the, the shiny new dolphin, you know, and um, so I think they felt, no, we'd, be- we'd better go. And so they did. And then they stayed out. And next thing then they were running out of fuel. The fog came down and um, Waterford was not um, as prepared as it should have been for a 24 hour search and rescue base. Um, There was difficulties with weather information. There were difficulties with lighting. This all came out in a very comprehensive air accident investigation unit report. And um, so um, they were basically trying to get home before they ran out of fuel and um, they collided with a sand dune. There were kind of uncanny resemblances with Rescue 116 also at night, crashed into an obstacle on the way. Oh, do we know now what happened to our 116? Yeah, I mean, it's a 350-page report. And as uh, the Tremor report was very comprehensive as well. And um, so they don't, they, you know, they they never say it was one cause with these accidents. And they piece together the, the, the pieces of the jigsaw, if you like. And so there would have been the main factors relating to weather, um, the pilots not being aware of the obstacle ahead and um, the poor visibility and then the contributory factors as well. And as we know, um, um, there were issues, obviously, with charts. There were issues with training and that conversation took place. That was um, part of the transcript, not the whole transcript, but part of the transcript showed that they hadn't been there in a while. And um, so, you know, it was like everything that could go wrong did go wrong on that night. 
if you go around the country, you'll see monuments to RNLI volunteers who have died over the years. But the RNLI, it now seems to have dealt with all the problems. Very safe place to work. It does. And um, it's uh, they have very high standards. But yeah, the RNLI is a very impressive organisation. If I get into trouble off the coast, I'm out in my boat. What do I need to contact these people? Well, they always say that a mobile phone is not enough. <laughs> yeah. And... Obviously, it's better than nothing, as the two paddleboarders in Galway Bay knew they didn't have their mobile phone. It was the one time that Ellen Glynn did not bring her phone. This is very recent rescue. Very recently, they survived a night on a paddleboard off the west coast of Ireland, which was in itself almost incredible. Yeah, 15 hours in Galway Bay with thunder and lightning and every type of weather that was thrown at them. They didn't have any form of communication. But obviously, if you had a handheld VHF or a personal locator beacon, and those personal locator beacons are very cheap now. Yeah, they're about, what, 150 euros? Yeah. They play a part in several rescues here because we fall in, these things go off through a satellite. Yeah. What about a VHF? Should you always have a VHF? Practically speaking, it may not be practical. If you're in a dinghy or something, it may not be practical for you to have a VHF. But 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 a VHF or personal locator beacon, yeah. Yeah. A couple of flares. A couple of flares. I'm in a sailing club in Spittle and, um, you know, we, we, we go through our safety routines and everything. But as you know, the weather in Ireland can change just like that. Mm. And you think it's going to be fine and you go out and you've done this many times before. But that one time is the time when you might just get into trouble. And that, of course, was Lorna Siggins and her book, Search and Rescue, True Stories of Irish Air Sea Rescues and the Loss of R116, is published by Merriam Press. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.